Welcome to Buy the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Baldoyan. My guest this week is Chris Shepard, the chef of Underbelly Hospitality, whose restaurants include One Fifth, Georgia James, and UB Preserve. Last year, Chris published a cookbook called Cook Like a Local that champions the diverse ingredients and flavors that define Houston's culinary landscape. And in 2015, Chris started the charitable festival Southern Smoke, which now provides crisis relief to the food and beverage industry during the pandemic. I wanted to hear from Chris how his restaurants are handling the reopening process, as well as the way Southern Smoke is providing help. Along the way, we discuss his love for bourbon and here's methodology for sourcing single barrels from distilleries like Willet, Buffalo Trace, and Weller. Interviewing Chris was something that was important to me because he's someone that's given back to the city in a lot of ways through Southern Smoke, and his restaurants also hold a very nostalgic kind of place in my relationship to the city of Houston. A hay merchant and underbelly were some of the first restaurants I ever visited when I first moved to Houston in 2013. And in all of my interactions with Chris, he's been incredibly kind and hospitable in every sense of that word. Uh, he's a great connector and just a very warm and friendly person. So I'm excited for you to hear the conversation. Was there a moment when shit really got real for you in this crisis where you realized that it wasn't just something going on abroad where it was something that was hitting home here in Houston or when you realized it was going to affect you personally? There was there was a few different scenarios that were really weird. Um, for me, I, I was asked to speak on, uh, on by some friends, Terry Wong, and asked me, he's like, hey, can you come do this, uh, come to the news station at Fox? We want to talk about, you know, what's helping support Chinatown. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, sure came down and it was like it was before COVID really it was just a thing of like it was affecting one part of the city but going down and speaking on you know sitting on a panel with a bunch of people talking to a newscaster about you know supporting you know the, the Asian communities and the restaurants on Bel Air and and it was like well this is going to affect all of us at some point mm-hmm. like so we have to be prepared for everybody to be in this not just one community but everybody and and you know, the next few days, like, Lindsay and I <clears throat> were asked to go to, to Switzerland to cook in St. Moritz. I said, yeah, sure, that would be fun. We get up there, and we're cooking, and, you know, I, I didn't really look at the map so much, but, you know, the last day, they said, the guys that we were working with, was like, hey, man, did you see the news last night, how they shut down this town in Italy because of corona? I said, I did. And he goes, that's like 40 minutes from here. Wow. I was like, what, what? <laughs> like, all right, now it's time to go. And so, like, literally, like, we shouldn't have been allowed to be there, you know. How big was the team that went to Switzerland? It was three of us. Just the three? Yeah, it was myself, Lindsay, and Nick Fine. And we all kind of looked at each other like, it's time to go. Yeah. And so we got back to Zurich, and, you know, on a flight the next day. But it was... Uh, it was, I think, then I started to look at it, and then we got back and started talking to our managers and had an all-management ma- all meeting. Um, I said, well, what happens? You know, I think when it really struck this city is when they when they closed the rodeo. Yeah. When, yeah, they, shut, when they canceled the rodeo, I think everybody looked at it and was like, this is real. I can't see Lizzo right now. Yeah. I can't go to this Lizzo concert. <laughs> That's when she like got real for forever, people. Yeah. You know? And it's like... 
you start to think about it like that, it's like that's a true thing. Like that's where Houstonians were like, wait, wait, what? Mm-hmm. You know, because they had already like, canceled South by Southwest in Austin, and yeah. everyone thought that was an overreaction. Yeah. And then when they decided to cancel Rodeo, I think for sure Houstonians were. It was like tomorrow, no more. Like, and it yeah. was like, wait, what? I got my, yeah. I got my hat. <laughs> I yeah. got, I'm gonna go watch the Bronx busted, and then I'm gonna watch a concert. I can't do that. It's like no. You know, we went through this is at the same time, like a few days before that. It's like rodeo cook off, sewer main break, or half yeah, the city yeah, has yeah. no water, wash your hands, don't do this, don't do that. And it's like all of this kind of just kind of came in at this one time. And, you know, we sat back and talked to our management staff and said, well, what happens? And I had never heard of the word furlough, right? I mean, I've heard it, but I've never really used it in any aspect of business for me personally, you know. and talking to our insurance people and you know lawyers and like how do you, you know do we have something for to file against our insurance right mm-hmm. no 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 virus is stricken every virus application has been written out okay well we're screwed there so how does this work and they're like well furlough <laughs> i'm like what does that mean so we talked about it as a management staff I was like well if this happens we have to go this route mm-hmm. and it was a matter of i think two days when the mayor or when um would have been like march like 18th yeah 18th or so yeah um and that was the day and i was like we already had it written up english and spanish we pulled everybody aside that night and like this is what's happening and i cried every five minutes and it was the hardest thing i've ever had to do it was one meeting with the whole team you had everyone from hey merchant georgia james i went from each restaurant and so i did this over and over again and uh, talked to front of the house, and I talked to the back of the house, and I talked to the front of the house, and I talked to the back of the house, and, you know. And it was, uh, it was tough, you know, explaining to, especially, you know, your dish team and your prep crews and your cooks, and not and everybody's really understanding, like, what the impact of this is yet. And they, everybody's like, am I getting fired? I'm like, no, you're not getting fired. You're getting furloughed. Like, we're going to take care of your insurance. We're going to take care of, you know, but we have to do this. But you have to file for unemployment now. Yeah. Like, do not wait. And so it was um, a lot of decisions that I never wanted to make, and but it's what had to be done. Well, it's also tough because there's no like end in sight. It's not like you're furloughed from this date to this date. You know, we were all like wondering: Is this a three week thing? Is this a two week thing? Is this a month long thing? Remember, they said we're going to do this for two weeks. Yeah, that was the first statement. We're going to close for two weeks. That was the very first thing. Like, you know, where we're at now and it's fine I get it we have to do this um, to, to, to flatten the curve to beat the curve to, to get through all of this together as a society and uh, you know because the last thing you want is someone to get sick right yeah. that's, the, that's the key thing but now we're open. we're back up and running for the most part in two restaurants and you know trying to figure out the other two and yeah we should say it's June 1st you're operating at 50% capacity right uh, now it is June 1st it's crazy right yeah it is it feels like, feels like March was simultaneously like a week ago and a lifetime ago. Like so much has happened. I'm not really sure what happened yeah. April and May. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad that I don't remember it so much. So we're at 50%, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that like our landlords didn't, we didn't sign leases on 50% occupancy, right? Yeah. There's probably only 40% of people that are willing to go out. I would say probably less than that, you yeah. know, 35 maybe. So I'm, I'm fighting for 50% of 35%. Mm-hmm. That's hard to do the math so you know like we have everybody's like well I'd be fine sitting outside well okay so let's build a patio 
And so I turned one-fifth half of their parking lot into a patio. How do you do that? How do you just like go from like deciding you want to build a patio to building a patio that quickly? Um, <laughs> that's kind of how I do things. Um, I, I didn't really think about it. Like I walked out and, you know, we had all the, the sticks up, like parking lot one, parking lot two, parking lot three, parking lot four for pickup. Yeah. Um, and I just was looking. I was like, man, this is a perfect door to get in and out of. And I was like, yeah. I'm going to go steal all the furniture from Blacksmith. Hell yeah. And I'm going to bring it down here. Because we just had a meeting with them. And they're like, man, we really want to change the patio because, you know, Davis, Davis doesn't want to open the inside of Blacksmith for quite some time. And I was like, I agree with that. He's like, mm-hmm. but I want to do new this, new that. And like literally just had the conversation. I was like, I'm going to come steal all your patio furniture. He's like, please get it out of here. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm going to steal all the patio furniture. And then I'm going to put up um, sun umbrellas. What are those table umbrellas, those big umbrellas? We had a couple of Lexus ones from okay. Southern Smoke. Yeah. I was like, I'll just stick those in them. Yeah. And then I'm going to build a little like center block two by four fence patio so I can put booze out there. Yeah. And I told everybody this and they're like, um, I know you'll do that. Are you concerned in any way about like permitting right now? Like with the city, like is the city like even bothering to give a shit about any of this stuff? I, my or? question is like, what are they going to, is it occupancy? Because I'm at 50% occupancy. Yeah. I've got way more than enough parking. Yeah. Right. If you take, if you say my occupancy before was 140, now it's 70. <laughs> I am, I am above the grade with with, with parking for that. Yeah. So, um, I and I and I'll fight that every day, you know. And mm-hmm. so it's it's, we put up fencing. We've got it tented in. We've got it, you know, grassed up and plants up with Telepson mm-hmm. uh, landscaping came in and, and did the design with us. And Milage Catering built it and had a friend at Al's give us generators. And, so like, it's been a community thing to help us get it up and running. It was yeah. like, let's see if it works. And then, you know, it, it, we went from 25 covers on reservations Friday to 125. Wow. In a matter of hours. And so the patio is a success. You know, mm-hmm. that's where everybody wants to be. That's fine. So now it's like, maybe I do that to the back of Georgia James and Hay Merchant. You know, I, yeah. that's a much more expensive patio, but like, <laughs> let's see who wants to be a part of that. So it's just like trying to learn something new all the time. And and I think that's where I spend my, most of my time is, uh, you know, all the restaurants are kind of doing what they're supposed to do. And, you know, now it's like, preserve, tell me what you want to do. Let's, let's iron this out. Like, how mm-hmm. do you get back open? How do you figure this out? Because it's such a small restaurant. You're still only, you know, 30 seats per seating. And, and you have that massive community table in UB Preserve, use, yeah. Which you can't use mm-hmm. because then I can't even, I can't put somebody at the bar, can't put somebody at the community table, and so I have I have three tables in there. Well, now I have to pull one out, so I can only put two four tops in that entire front dining room. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's it's a matter of like how do you make that work, you know? And so uh, we'll we'll get there, you know. I Has know the menu itself like? The, the food items that are being offered, have you altered those in any way because of the coronavirus? Some, I mean, with one-fifth, no. I mean, one-fifth was supposed to be lightning round and we we're supposed to open up back with this Vietnamese concept. And, mm-hmm. and I, looked at the, I looked at everybody there and I said, what do you want to do? And they said, man, what do you want to do? I said, I want to do Mediterranean. I want hummus again. And yeah. we, you know, when, during the whole take and bake phenomenon of everybody just you know going out to... You know, no mm-hmm. restaurants are just picking up to go. Matt said, I'm going to go down and do some hummus and mm-hmm. some pita. We'll see how that sells. And we sold out in like five minutes. And so yeah. I was like, there's a demand. 
Mm-hmm. So let's just go back to that. Let's take people this want comfort food during a time yeah. like this. They want to feel comforted and things like hummus, you know. Well, we were doing like how much King Ranch can one person eat, right? Like, Hell that, yeah. That hurts yeah. It. And so it's like, let's put something that's a little yeah. bit healthier out there yeah. and see how that works. You know, like you can come in like, and it's a perfect to go foil for us really. All the salad teams and the salads and the hummus and the pita, like kebabs, like that's, it's a very mm-hmm. light but healthy vegetable driven menu and like, it, but it's comforting at the same time, so let's go with that. So were you also in the midst of a book tour when all this was going on? Or Kinda, was that kind of like starting to... Nah, I mean, the funny thing is, is like, um, we did some dinners around the country, and, and, you know, it was plans for more in the future, so yeah, yeah. I guess, but like, I wasn't ever going to go on a 20-city thing. Yeah. Right? That's just not me. That's not my mm-hmm. style. Um, we wanted to go cook with some of our friends, and that was about it. Yeah. You know, we did one at Fig in Charleston in February, and that was great. Um, but, you know, we're supposed to go to Raleigh and do some other things. But, like, everything's just on hold now. It's a really cool cookbook, Cook Like a Local. Yeah. Um, and it's set up differently than a lot of cookbooks. There are six sections to it, and they're all kind of split up on a different kind of, like, focus. You've got a chapter or a, a focus on soy. You've got a focus on corn. Fish sauce is the opening part of the book. Houston tastes like fish sauce. Why does Houston taste like fish sauce? That's what I wanted it to be called. <laughs> That's what I wanted the book to be called. And the like, editor was like, like, no go? Yeah, the 86 like, nah, stuff? Because then it brings it in too much to a Houston book. Right? Okay. It is the first line in the book, but it was one of those things that's like, it would be too Houston focused. And I, I agree with that now, looking at it, because yes, it is a love letter to Houston, but it is more of a love letter to our country and to our world. It's about learning from people and, and, and listening. And that's a key thing is like not always talking, but doing a lot of listening. And then once you listen, let's have the conversation about things, and let's let's you know, I it's you know moving here from, you know Oklahoma, like I, I didn't know any of this thing, so fish sauce was most important to me because it was the very first one of the first things that I found, and then I uh, I listened to and I looked at and I was like, you know we would go to Mize as cooks, you know because it was late open yeah. late and I was at Brennan's and so that's a legend in the city Mize. It is. It is. What do they close at? Like four in the morning? Yeah. Something crazy like that? Was, you know, she was always there and he'd be like, Chris, come on. And it was like, there'd yeah. be like 30 people standing in line. It's like, Chris, come on. And like, yeah. It's, it's, so it's, it was one of those things like just learning and, and trying. And like the first time I tried fish sauce, I was like, this is disgusting. Yeah. You know, and then it's like, just give me peanut sauce, man. I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Like yeah. to me, I can relate to this a little bit more. And then all of a sudden, like someone's like, you know, you're just trying to fish sauce on its own. Put it on the dish, mm-hmm. on that noodle bowl, and I did, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is so enlightening and delicious yeah. and flavorful." And so it was like, "This has to be respected and talked about and learned from and loved from." And, and, and you know, if I can get my mom to try it, then I think we're okay. So that was part of the goal of this cookbook, right? Is to get people to use these ingredients that they don't normally mm-hmm. like seek out. Well, and, and I think, you know, that's what we've always done is try to give people, I always said, I want to be the gateway for it, right? I want to give you a little taste, and then I want you to go find it on your own. Yeah. Like, I want you to go discover your own community and your own city, for, for, for lack of better words, you mm-hmm. need to, because like, I'm just going to give you a little taste. I'm going to get you taste of gochujang, but then you need to go see it, its application in true form, whether it be in a braise or a soup or, mm-hmm. or just as, a, as an accoutrement to your barbecue or whatever. Go, just yeah. go do it. And have these conversations with people that you've never met before and, and just listen and talk and actually gain something. 
And that's something that you get into a little bit in the book is that kind of like distinction between like learning versus discovering. You know, you talk about in the book going around and trying to find the best bowl of pho that you can, mm -hmm. right? So like for you, what's your platonic ideal of a pho? Like, <laughs> I think just good broth base. Yeah. You know, um, I, I don't know if there's bad pho. So I'm, I'm sure there is. Like you can, like people are like, there's too much MSG. There's this, there's that. But if you get into some place where you can see and you can smell and you can look in the back and you can see the pots bubbling away and you yeah. know there's effort, love into it, to me that's the beauty, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, will all you know beef tendon be cooked the same? No. Is it my favorite? Not really. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty generic on it. I just like the like. Even like Lynn, when Lindsay and I go, she goes, she doesn't even want the, the noodle or the, she just wants the broth. Yeah. Right? It's all about broth. And so whenever I'm like painfully hungover, like really, really badly, the one thing that I want is pho. That's like my Pedialyte. That's yeah. what I want. That will cure my hangover. Yeah, it will. It'll cure you your, all your ales. And it's yeah. like when we traveled, you know, we got to the point where we traveled a lot, but it was like when we landed, it was, that's the, that's what we got. Yeah. It was like, we knew we were home. Yeah. Because I don't want to eat pho anywhere else. And I have, you know, in some places do it really well. Um, but Houston is, I mean, people say, like, what's the, what's the food of the city? You know, what's the dish? And it's pho to me. You know, and that's why, like, when ramen shops come in, like, people are like, ramen's delicious, but we don't have, like, lines out the door. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that's because we're a pho-based city. You know, we can still all eat soup when it's hot, but it's it's clear, it's not as heavy, it's, you know, it makes you feel good. It's not is something that I can have before my shift, yeah. right? Like, I can go get a bowl, I can go to Pho Saigon in Midtown and then, like, head over to work and work a 12-hour day and not feel like shit. Or you could eat it after your shift and still feel just as fine, too. Yeah. Like, it's not going to be, it doesn't, like, hurt you, like... To go to bed after, you know, it's like... Unless you add a fuck ton of bone marrow to it. <laughs> then, then, then you're screwed. Then you're screwed. Then... Yeah, yeah but... that's true. That's true. Fub in by night, I'll put you down with that. So. so, you know, I had recommended Cook Like a Local to one of my friends. Um, and she was, like, a little frustrated because she's like, look, all these recipes require this ingredient that I don't have. And I'm going to have to go to the store and buy this one thing for this one recipe. Yeah. You know, and you know, that's the goal, right? Is that you're introducing people to these things. But what do you say to those people when they're like, oh, all these recipes require this one thing that I don't already own? It's about you building know? a repertoire on a pantry, right? Yeah. That isn't just like maple syrup and, you know, olive oil. Mm -hmm. it's, it's having these things because they're so versatile across the board. Like, I, I'm just genuinely curious no matter what. So I'll end up going into a grocery store and if I don't know what it is, I buy it. Yeah. And then I'm going to try it and I'm going to play with it and I'm going to see how it tastes to see the textures and things like that. So like, if you walk to my pantry right now, you'd be like, what the <laughs> fuck are you doing? Like, why do you have 14 different soy sauces? And like, I'm yeah. also the guy that has like, if you open up the refrigerator, there's four different types of mayonnaise in there. There's five different types of mustard. Like, okay, give me your, give me your like Mount Rushmore of mayonnaise. Like favorite brands. Dukes. Your Dukes? Dukes, yeah. Dukes. Are you not a QP guy? It's underneath Dukes. Okay. It goes Dukes, QP, Hellman's, and then I'm going to go um, Miracle Whip. Miracle which Whip? Is, which is underrated. Boiled, boiled dressing and Miracle Whip on a turkey sandwich is one of the most delightful things ever. I'm on board with that. <laughs> most I'll people make... are like, you are disgusting. I'm like, no. No. Boiled dressing is absolutely delicious. And I understand it's not mayonnaise. I get it. 
it's good though. Yeah. So it has its purpose, just like everything does. But going back to like finding, you know, it's finding your own calling, right? Mm-hmm. I think that if maybe you didn't put barbecue sauce on your chicken that you grilled that night, maybe you put sweet soy with a little bit of chili in it, like that's a perfect combination. Like mm-hmm. that's a perfect like textural and it, it brings it back to like what you can understand. I think page thirty eight is probably the clearest definition of like using fish sauce, but not know you're using fish sauce. Right? It is herbs, it is cilantro, it's green onions, it's garlic, it's chilies, it's honey, lime juice, fish sauce, all puree together, and you put a chicken in there. Right? And then you cook a chicken. But all of those flavors combined, you wouldn't be able to pick out fish sauce. Right? But because of the salt, sugar, and you marinate, it's a perfect brine, for one. And it just creates the most delicious chicken there is. And that's like that's the newest dish for H-E-B. I'm not going to tell them that, but that's what's going in. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's, it's something that the, the best palate or the beginner palate will love. Right? And that's a clear way of understanding how fish sauce can interact with that. Gochujang the same way. Dry spices, same way. Um, I know that we we built a, a pantry list for sure, but um, it's super easy. And once you can figure out that pantry, you can change so many different things and change the way you look at things a little bit. Cooking with these ingredients, these are things that, you know, in the world of wine can be like notoriously difficult for pairings, right? Oh, yeah. Or where a lot of people might just default to like, oh, well, I'm going to recommend a Riesling, yeah. right? Um, as someone that has worked as a sommelier, like, how do you think about pairing these flavors with wine? I think it's pretty easy, actually. Yeah? Yeah. In fact, I don't think reason is the go-all, catch-all for most of these things, right? Um, that chicken, Pinot Blanc, screaming. Pinot Blanc from, like, Alsace or... Man, I'm going to go with Germany. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. <laughs> like... Just get you a half bottle of Sinsky Pinot Blanc or get yeah. your Pinot Gris from them. Like any of their crisp, clean whites. Or, their Abraxas is yeah, it's killer. fantastic. Yeah. And, and you know, traditionally I don't like reverse demeanor at all. Mm-hmm. But just a touch of it in there is, is very nice. Um, but like, just go get something delicious to drink. And mm-hmm. if you try to go overboard in the ideas of like cooking food like this and pairing wine with like this, then you're going to be lost. Mm-hmm. If you can go like... We are very methodical in what we drink, right? Um, I know that if I'm going to cook this chicken that's page 38 with all this bright citrus and chilies and things like that, I'm not going to put a big, heavy, heavy red with it. I'm going to do something lighter, you know, mm-hmm. Grenache or Pinot or something like that. And it's going to be because you're grilling it or charring it. It's because of the honey caramelization into it. It makes it a perfect pairing for that. Um, and then it's about what else are you cooking with it? You know, are you, mm-hmm. you got some corn, your favorite recipe in the book, just corn. <laughs> like, yeah. How do you, how do you not drink something like that? Like those two wines, either Pinot Blanc or Pinot Gris or Pinot Noir or Grenache. Like that's a perfect thing, you know? And then you get, once you start talking about like the, the, like say the Samjong, like the braised short ribs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then you can go into something much earthier or fruit forward either way. Take your pick. Bigger, bolder reds. Mm-hmm. It's super easy. So some listeners may not know this about you, but you worked as a sommelier at Brennan's. I did. Back in 04. Yep. Right? I started in 97. 97, okay. 97 in the kitchen and then um, worked my way up to Executive Sioux 
And then uh, I, I, I knew, like, when I, the reason I went to culinary school uh, and I came here, I, I said, when I was just starting school, you know, I first started cooking in Houston, um, but there was a magazine. We all know it. It's called Food and Wine. Yeah. And there's a reason why it's food and wine. Yeah. Is, in, in my opinion, I needed to know both. And so as a young cook, and like my parents lived here, and so I moved down here to go to school, and I was living with them. So I would take a paycheck. Every time I take a, get a paycheck, I'd take 100 bucks, right? And I would go buy four or five different Sauvignon Blancs from around the world. So I could start to learn like different flavor profiles, and then mm-hmm. I would do four. The next paycheck would be four or five Pinots from around the world, and four or five Cabs, four or five Merlots, four or five Chardonnays, four or five. Yeah. And it was always that because I felt that if I was going to be better in this industry, I had to understand both sides of it, front of the house and back of the house. And so when I, I just had that love for wine, and I went and just. I, I took that the first level of the core to MS um, just as a mm-hmm. sous chef because I was like I want to do this too, yeah. You know, and and so when it came time, uh, the wine buyer was leaving. I talked to the GM and I was like, Hey man, can I do it? He was like, What? I was like, Yeah, I, I wanna I wanna go work service. Mm-hmm. He was like, Seriously? I was like, Yeah, I want. I mean, I'm already buying all the product. I was doing the purchasing agent, being a purchasing agent for the kitchen anyway. I was like, I can buy wine. And I could sell anything. Like, yeah. let me just go talk to people. I want to learn service because if I'm going to be better in this industry, I'm going to have to know what a guest wants before they do, what the reaction is before they sit down, when they see that first bite. Because working in a closed kitchen, you never really saw that. You just saw mm-hmm. tickets coming in. Yeah. And there was a separation between front of the house and back of the house because it was like just the waiters are doing it, doesn't matter. And then it was just the cooks are doing it, it doesn't matter. I wanted to throw them how to build that bridge that that would never happen again, that one team can, you know, be better and so I wanted to know that and so yeah so I took over the wine program they gave me a big budget and I, I tasted everything under the sun that I possibly could and, you know it was uh, it was one bottle that I found a six pack of something up there in the wine room because they had you know shit was everywhere yeah. it was stored everywhere um, <laughs> I found a, a six pack of something I'd never heard of but I knew the winemaker um, and it was Tony Soder, you know, from before he mm-hmm. made wine at Etude. Um, but I saw this Soder. It was 1998 Beacon Hill Pinot Noir. And I was like, all right, well, let's try this. I opened up a bottle, and it made my life complete. Right? It was that yeah. one taste of wine. It was like, this is why I drink wine. Yeah. This is why I want to know more. And it was... To me, equivocally, the best bottle I've ever tasted, and it was so, just so fresh and vibrant. It was spoke of a place, and so I've, I've always been a soda fan from here on out. But it was that bottle that just made me the lights came on. Fuck yeah! And they just clicked, and I was like, "Here we go," you know. And so down the rabbit hole. Yeah. And I know, I know that you had developed this like palette for wine at that point. Was whiskey something that you were really into then? Mm-mm. No, um, man, I was vodka grapefruits. Let's go, yeah, and or a glass of wine. But yeah. um, at some point, you know, doing becoming one of the southern chefs and like traveling a lot, it was always like, hey, let's go get a whiskey. Let's go get a whiskey. Let's go get a whiskey. All right. Well, as, as you can tell about myself, I, if I'm going to go down a rabbit hole, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, and so I started to learn more about bourbon 
and um, started to appreciate it more. Started to collect it and try and same thing. Was it the same? Yeah, I was gonna it say was the, the same, same methodology, like yep. two take, or three from take this. Take hundred bucks, yeah. go buy something from different distilleries. Yeah. Do I like rye? Do I like heavier? You know, like corn. Do I like heavier? Like trying to find out what I liked more. I like weeded whiskeys is what I've come to find out. Yeah. Um, but I appreciate all of them. Uh, and just really geeked out on it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot worse than me, but like it's, the collecting thing can be a problem. <laughs> but yeah. it was like, people are like, how do you build a collection? It's like, well, man, every time you get a paycheck, just go buy a bottle. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to drink that bottle. Well, what's so great about whiskey, too, is like you can open it and you've got time. You know, wine, you open that bottle. You got to go. You got to go. It's harder to maybe do comparative tastings, right? And the thing I love is like finding old stuff or new stuff or, you know, being in the Kentucky Tejas Club, like buying a whole barrel is probably the only significant thing you can do these days because like buying really expensive. There's so much whiskey that's coming out and it's expensive, right? And so, but it's... It's cool, but like I think to try to find the f- true essence of things, like we've been lucky enough to be able to go buy barrels and buy our own barrels, and so like to taste something that isn't blended into seventy-five or hundred or two hundred barrels and become a small batch or single, yeah. you know, single barrel program, where this is like no, this is this barrel, this is its unique flavor. Yeah. Like to, so, if you go into a liquor store and yeah. you see that little stamp on somebody's like. Our single barrel, or this barrel, or somebody else's barrel, like that's what you should be trying. So, so digging into that a little bit, the Tejas Kentucky Club mm-hmm. is uh, the kind of consortium of. It's basically us and agricultural hospitality. And you guys are going through to different distilleries and selecting individual barrels, having that bottled, and then having it at your restaurants, and then also at a couple of like key liquor stores. Yeah, right? we'll retail a little bit of it until it causes a problem, but yeah. Getting there, um, seeing people stand there at seven a.m. in the morning, yeah. like there's only twelve bottles. Why you're fourteen? What are you doing? <laughs> like, well, yeah. do the math. Like, why are you standing here? Like, yeah, you know everybody's buying a bottle, but you're fourteen. Like, yeah, so that's crazy. It reminds me a little bit, you know, this market for bourbons. It's not all that different from the market for sneakers right now. I don't know if you follow yeah. kind of like no, sneaker no, culture. You have all those shops across from one fifth. Yeah, and, like yesterday, there's. You know, 50 people standing in line. You see these new uh, Chunky Dunkies that got released? It's these SB Dunks from Nike, and it was a super limited run of, like, Ben & Jerry's-inspired sneakers from Nike, (laughs) and they're flipping them for, like, 10 times what they paid. It's crazy. Don't put them on their feet, though? No, people are—a lot of people are just, like, flipping them, like, buying them and, like, immediately flipping them. I mean, if they made them in 15 wides, I would probably stand in line, (laughs) but, man, I can't get one of those— They're pretty pretty goofy-looking sneakers. They're crazy. Yeah, I Um, I don't get it, but— But, like, what do you guys look for in your, uh, like, barrel selections, right? Like, is there anything in particular you guys are hoping to have, like, a, like, distinct, like, flavor profile? like it's something unique, right? It's it's finding a mash bill or something that's— separate than what they normally do mm-hmm. or if it's very like because you you take just hey Lindsay, mm-hmm. will you grab me two glasses and the bottle of the, right inside of the wine room that weller um foolproof mm-hmm. um I, I think that when you start to like these once they start to blend right they blend to a certain profile mm-hmm. that may not be my profile 
but it's going to be pretty close because I wouldn't yeah. be there if not. Like, mm-hmm. if I didn't like the whiskey to begin with, I wouldn't be asking for a single barrel. Um, and so when they let us do it, it's like, what is unique about this? Yeah. Where does this, how does this become better? Like, what is it? Because, like, like, when we did this barrel, <laughs> it was for uh, a Weller um, uh, 107, hmm. right? But I said, one of our friends asked, he said, well, why don't you ask him to do the foolproof? I hear it's coming out. Okay. And so I said, we're standing there. I was like, can we do the foolproof? And they're like, how did you know about that? <laughs> That's funny. And so like this one specifically is like one of the hardest whiskeys to get right now. But um, we bought a barrel of it. So we should say that y'all have collaborated with Weller, Elijah Craig. You started with Maker's Mark, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we've done them with Knob Creek, Weller, Willet, Buffalo Trace. And we did a Blanton's Barrel. And we've done like yeah. We've probably done I don't know eighteen or nineteen or twenty single barrels. Wow. At this point, one should be coming out. It's a tequila aged in Van Winkle barrels. So waiting on that. But this, this to me, I'm really glad I bought a case of it for myself. <laughs> Because this might be one of the finest bourbons I've had in a long time. And I know you said weeded whiskey. That's mm-hmm. really your vibe. But what else do you look for in your specific flavor profile? Like, I, look, I mean, I know this is 114 proof, right? I know it. But it doesn't come off as that. It's very well mm-hmm. integrated into it. Yeah. But it's like the caramel notes. Does it have the esters? Does it have like that? It's really good. Yeah. It's either this or... I love some good 1970s old granddad. Yeah? Yeah. That was uh, one of the more unique things for me when I was in Japan, uh, going to this place called, like... I think it was called the Liquor Library. Yeah. And just whiskey going back a century, just old bottles of wild turkey. That's really cool, Yeah, it was super cool. Like, that experience of tasting, you know that particular whiskey, a vertical going back decades from one particular distillery. That's awesome. Yeah, it was bonkers. It was super cool. When we were in Switzerland, there was a, there was a whiskey place, and, and I went both nights we were in Zurich, and yeah. it was just like, ooh, 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 ooh. It's so easily priced. Yeah. You know, here it'd be so much more expensive, but if I could try some you know, 1960. Old Crow from a traveler's bottle with the mm-hmm. little leather capsule on top and yeah. beautifully packaged, beautifully packaged mm-hmm. for twenty bucks. Come on, let's go. totally. Are there other like international styles of whiskey that you really dig? The, the problem is, is like I understand me, mm-hmm. right? I understand my mentality about things, and once I do that, say if I get into like Lowland Scotch, yeah, I, I don't have enough storage facility here. Yeah. Like, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Like, I, scotch to me is so confusing and so, but it's compelling, but it's confusing. And like, Japanese whiskey, now at this point, it's just hard to get. Like, yeah. so, but um, it's whiskey, wine, and Amaro. Yeah, because you, you fuck with Amaro pretty hard. You posted that photo recently of it was like a pineapple yeah. Amaro, right? <laughs> it's delicious. What does that taste like? It's like, delicious. it's like, it tastes like pineapple? Yeah. It's got some sweetness to it, but you can tell you like that roasted pineapple flavor. Yeah. And it's really good, um, but we drink a lot of Amaro. 
Yeah. And it's, you know, it's another one of those things like you got to, you know, the first time you have it, it's like fish sauce. Like, yeah. Oh, God. yeah. And if you just start. Do you remember your that, first tomorrow that you tried? Man, probably for net. Yeah. For most of us, it was probably for net. I was living in SF. I was working for a restaurant out there and it was some like dive bar in North Beach, you know, and. I had a shot of Fernet, and that's not something you easily forget. No, no, it's not. Now I have more of an appreciation for it. So it's like understanding the styles of Amaro and like finding cool stuff. Is... When you were in Switzerland, did you see some cool shit yeah, up I there? Yeah, I brought some back. Yeah. 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 And I was just like, Antonio, find me this. And he's like, yeah. nope, can't have it. I was like, that's yeah, dog it, dog it, dog it. Like, yeah. Appalenser, Appalenser, I think is what okay. it was. And it was like, just their normal drink. Everybody had a shot of that. That was their Fernet. And yeah. so, like, all the restaurant crews like, Appalenser, yes! And I was like, yeah. all right. We know having Antonio at, you know, Houston Wine Merchant. He does this all the time. He's like, I got two bottles of this. You want one? <laughs> it's like, yes, I do. Hell yeah. And he's like, I don't know if you're going to like it or not, but it's going to be interesting. I'm like, yep. So, Antonio, we've talked about him a couple of times. How did you guys initially meet? Like, what restaurant were you both working Catalan. at? Catalan. Catalan. He came on. Actually, it's funny because I tried to. I went to talk to him about taking over um, the wine program at Brennan's when I was leaving. Yeah. And I was talking to him about why well, I'm going to go do the same Catalan. He's like, I really want to hear more about that. <laughs> I was like, All right. <coughs> talked to him. He's like, Yeah, I don't want to do Brennan's, man. I want to do Catalan. And I was like, oh, Okay. And yeah. So we 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 worked together for a few years. And then he went to Houston Wine Merchant and. We were doing dinners to raise money for scholarships to put people through culinary school. Cool. We did those, put a kid through school, um, but he came back and asked me if I wanted to do a dinner for MS. And now we're not going to do a dinner for MS. I mean, my first, my, my first question was like, why? And he told me well, I was diagnosed. And I was like, okay, totally different scenario. All right, we're not going to do a dinner. We're going to throw a party. And the idea was to throw a party in the back parking lot and maybe do a barbecue for like 200 people. We'll invite Aaron Franklin and Sean Brock and Ronnie Scott. And everybody said yes, and we're going to do this thing. And then we went to the city's department of special events. And it was like, hey, can we block off the sidewalks? And Susan looked at us and was like, what are you doing? And we told her, she's like, no, we're going to block off all the streets. Oh, wow. We're going to give you the stage for music. We're going to give you all of the, the things that you need to throw a festival. It's like, the fuck does that even mean? Yeah. Like, we've never done that. So we learned. So I told the MS Society we're going to raise $100,000. Got some other chefs involved and other people involved. And then um, they laughed when we said we we're going to do that because you hear this outrageous number. And they're like, you guys have never done this before. You're not even doing no. no fucking way. And like, we hadn't. So we didn't know. And like, that was the whole thing. If you don't say it, you won't do it. And so. The same people that laughed cried when we wrote them a hundred uh, check for one hundred eighty one thousand. Wow! Next year, you way overshot it. Way overshot it. Next year, I, I stood on stage. We're gonna do it again next year. Two hundred thousand. Don't say that. This was a, a kind of a fluke. Like this shouldn't happen, but it was like it did. And then we got some more chefs to come out. And, you know, two hundred eighty four thousand that year. So to put this in a timeline, right? 2015, 2015, first year of Southern Smoke, mm -hmm. and then the following year, 2016. Yep. Yeah. 284, and then 2017, Harvey came through. Um, and we <coughs> realized that we needed to have a better foundation, a better scenario, for, and a better way for folks in our industry. Because I started getting phone calls from people all over the country, and you know, emails and texts, like, hey, how do I get money into people in the industry? It's like, 
there isn't a way, man. You can put it to J.J. Watt's phone, you can put it to the mayor's phone, you can put it to the Red Cross, but there's no way. Like, you can't literally just walk up and give somebody money. Like, it doesn't work that way. It was a scary yeah. time, you know? So I called all the chefs, added a few more, talked to Antonio, said, hey, man, I'm out to put MS on hold this year. He's like, I get it. What's up? And I said, well, we have found out a way through Legacy Community Health to be able to process an application. Um, and so people could apply in English, Spanish, or Vietnamese. And then once they went through the verification process, their names were taken off. Then it went into an awards committee. And then they would be able to be granted funds. And so that year, we, it was one of the greatest days of my life. It was We had 200 and I'd say 50 applications come in. But we granted 139 uh, for half a million dollars. And so, like, one day walking into work and Catherine just hands me a stack of checks. And I was like, what the hell is this? And she's like, that's half a million dollars that you're sending out to all your people in the industry. And I was, because I said it, I was like, I don't care if you're a dishwasher, drive through, stock wine, plant yeah. vegetables, deliver milk. I don't care. Anybody in the food chain, mm-hmm. right? anybody in our system. So at that point, that's when we realized that we needed to have a full-time foundation or um, not just doing Southern Smoke for MS research, but also for um, hospitality relief fund um, so that any time anybody got into a time of crisis that they could apply. And so it just went from then on out. We never stopped. We never looked back. And so um, it's creating a safety net for people in an industry that infrastructurally does not have one. We Most people in the industry don't have health insurance, right? Most people in the industry are living paycheck to paycheck. Any sort of interruption to business can have a detrimental impact yeah. instantaneously. It's, I mean, the day of. I mean, if you don't work. You have a shitty shift. One table stiffs you, you know. Fucked. Yeah. And like, that to me doesn't make sense, right? It, it made us realize that on a day-to-day basis, like when it goes south, people are putting like a lot of stress on themselves. And like, that's the worst feeling. I remember as a cook, like not having enough money to get home, like much less like hoping that maybe I had enough hours on that check to make rent. And like, that's a, that, that's a mental toll that nobody should have to go with. And I know we all do, and that's it's, it's part of it. But, you know, we continued doing what we're doing. And then come January of this year, like we had, you know, Catherine Lotz, our executive director, but we had two and a half employees. That was more than we would ever had. Yeah. I, I remember sitting in the meeting, like, do we really need one more person? Like, mm-hmm. during COVID, like, because so many, once this happened, everybody wants to do something. Yeah. But if you're not set up, you're, you're, you can't do it, you know? And so, like, we immediately went from two and a half employees to 30 now 40 mm-hmm. I think we're going back down to 30 30 let's say 35 35 employees right that were all hospitality yeah. um, folks that got furloughed or laid yeah. off um, we hired, your hiring increased tenfold yeah. over the course of this yeah we hired and, that many and what, what what was the role of these new hires like what was their they job they became caseworkers. okay they would funnel calls and mm-hmm. talk to people and help them walk through the situations and the scenarios which um, I, I don't know the scenarios and the situations. Yeah. I'm not supposed to. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm the fundraising voice. I'm the one that mm-hmm. put myself out there. But like knowing who gets money and who does not, I, I don't know, which has always been great. Because <laughs> um, it's a separation of church and state, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, because like I don't ever want anybody to say, well, they were Chris's employees, so they got paid. Like, 
But without knowing the specifics of individual cases, like people that are applying, what are the sorts of things that Southern Smoke is helping fund? It's, right it's helping fund pay rent, pay medical expenses. You know, first when the, when everything started coming through. So let's say during Harvey, we had 250 applications, right? Mm-hmm. COVID-19 came on at 24,000 and growing. Yeah. So, and I think that once you start to see that first round of PPP and that second round of PPP that got people off of unemployment, I think um, I think you're going to see it spike again. Yeah. Um, which is terrifying. That's really terrifying. Um, but at the, these individuals were taught to be caseworkers to deal with things. Like first was medical emergency. Are you dying? Mm-hmm. Like, do you need to see a doctor? Do you need help? Do you need your medicine paid for? Are you need to go see somebody for something? Um, and then it's like, are you facing evictions? Like June 1st today is um, a lot of people are, have problems with the, rent. The grace period for evictions in the city of Houston, that yes. period has passed. Yeah. That grace so, period. Um, without a lot of help, it's, I mean, there's a lot of fear right now. It's, it's, it's a daunting time right now. Um, so helping people, people keep food on the table and keeping a hood over their, uh, you know, a roof over their head and. You know, and I think some of the great things that we need to accomplish is is the touch of it. You know, in in ten weeks we've we've been able to grant um, one point one point eight, right? Yeah, a little over one point eight million and over three point five since we started. I think one of the greatest things was over the past week we were able to join forces with um, Mental Health America and the U of H and be able to offer free mental health. Um, care for anybody in the industry in the state of Texas because I don't think people really understand um, and it was one of these things that like Nick Wong came to me um, his one of his good one of his friends um, took their own life and then the next day Anthony Bourdain did um, and it really hit our industry hard and, and he asked <coughs> this was year four three four four four, four of Southern Smoke yeah and he said, you have the ability to have a conversation with everybody. Can we do that? And I was like, what do you mean? I was like, how do we make a change? And I was like, yeah, fuck it. So part of the agenda that week weekend for all of them, for all the chefs coming in, just the chefs, no media, nobody else. Mm-hmm. We're going to have lunch at Preserve. And then we had um, the director for mental health from um, Legacy come in. And we had a big roundtable discussion. And how do we make our industry better? What are the words? What are the things? What are the signals? What are the keys that we need to look at? Mm-hmm. And how do we change? And then it became part of our passion to be able to make that change for folks in the industry to make sure that there is a mental health issue, right? Mm-hmm. In society, but in our industry, when you talk about the pressures and you talk about like just a normal service night. Like, and so what we did, Mental Health asked me, Mental Health America asked if I would come speak on behalf of it. I said, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I would love to, listening to some of their doctors talk. But we put a video together of just like a Friday night service. And it was just so fast-paced. And it was only like two minutes. But everybody was like this. <laughs> just yeah. sat back in their chair. And you could see anxiety rise yeah. through the room. Mm-hmm. And it was like... This is the service industry. Yeah. Seven days a week. Like, this is what we deal with. And so having, you know, there needs to be a more of a conversation because most of our industry, even, you know, 
I didn't even talk about bartenders so much that go until two or three or four in the morning. Yeah. But it just I can speak to cooks that get done and they're done at eleven or twelve. They may go have a beer and then they're wired and they're sitting there until two or three or four in the morning. Yeah. And the dark place is a really fucking dark place. And like without somebody to talk to, like you can go down dark holes, and that's not good in life. And so to have some place, I think this is for me one of the greatest things to ever happen is that anybody can call. Kind of that hotline that was created. Yeah, it's yeah. huge. It's absolutely huge. And like, if this can be the groundwork for um, industry throughout the country, mm-hmm. let's just go. And the other thing that I think is great about Southern Smoke, beyond you know being able to help financially with people, is you guys have a great like set of resources available yeah. on the website for people to call, places to go, resources like, hey, you think that you are having an issue with your electrical bill? Like, if you're with Reliant, they will work with you on it. Follow this link. Yeah. You guys have, like, a great set of resources on the site. Yeah, well, I mean, that's trial and error for us, you know? Yeah. That's because someone will call us and be like, I have a problem with this, and then we go hammer it out, and it's like, oh, that's that easy? Okay, let's write that down yeah. so that people know, like, hey, if this is the issue, go here. Yeah. If you need help with addiction, go here. If you need help mm-hmm. with mental health, go here. If you need help with this, go here. Like, but I think These are the people that can help. I think the challenge, though, is you got to get people to ask for help, right? And most people, like, you can be there to provide all the help that you possibly can, but if that person isn't making it clear that they, like, need help, you know, if they're not vocalizing that, it's really fucking well, tough. people in right? our industry are stubborn. Well, the other problem is that in our industry, we're, like, taught to say yes to everything, right? To not make a problem out right. of things, right? Like, it's our job in customer service that the customer's always right, that we should be bending over backwards to make their life easier. If it makes our life harder but makes someone else's job easier, then we should do it. Yeah. There has to be that breaking point. I mean, you can't get to the breaking point, right? Before that, you have to have mm-hmm. your own breaking point before it does break. Right? There has to yeah. be a way that, like, you can take on the world's problems if you want, but you need to let go of some of your own. Yeah. Right? Like, you can sit and talk about everything that's going on right now, or you can deal with your own. And dealing with your own is the greatest thing. The one thing that I do know that, like, with, with, you know, I get to see some of the scenarios that go through before they go to the board for approval. And, you know, no, no, no names, no areas, no, I don't know where they are. It's just the scenario. And the one thing that has very much humbled me over this entire process is that people in our industry will never ask for more than they need. And that's very humbling. You know, it's like, I see it, it's like, I, gotta, I need to put food on the table, I gotta pay rent, I gotta make car note, I'm gonna pick cell phone and gas bill. And it's like, I need $437. It's like, wait, what? What? Yeah. I'd, I mean, 1200 would make more sense to me. Like, no, just 437 We're good. I don't need one penny more. And it's like, it's awesome to see that. Um, I, I just want to know that that gets them through. You know what yeah. I'm saying? No, for sure. Because <clears throat> it's, it's uh, you know, and people that have donated have been the greatest uh, I mean, it's the five and ten dollar donations that like touch my heart. You know, the thousand ones are great, and the ten thousands and the companies coming up and be like, "Here's forty five thousand. Like that's awesome. Like because we, mm-hmm. we have to do this, and <clears throat> there is no other way." I wish there was, but I think that you know, even as we start to get back to normalcy and normal life, whatever that may be. It's still going to be slower. It's insane. And like even to think about where we're at in Houston, like we're we're so far past everybody else right now, right? 
everybody else in the country is like, oh, we might get to 20% or 25%. Like, they're starting to very slowly open. Like, New York, yeah. like, they're going to start to slowly, slowly open. But when does New York come back? Ever? Mm-hmm. When, when will New York's tourism and restaurant scene where, like, just this small little dining room that we're sitting in would pack in 35 people? Yeah. And you would be sitting so close and onto people. When does that happen again? When is it going to be good to go back into Uncle Boone's again? Right? Yeah. I, I don't see it. Like, I just don't know how that happens. And so that's how restaurants make it. You know, like the, the, the starting to see the closings of what we're seeing is just the tip of the iceberg. And it's going to be a lot more. And it's terrifying. What? What's getting you through this? Like when you chat with your chef friends, you know, they're in other parts of the country. Seeing their hustle. Yeah. Their hustle is what gets me by. I think I talk to Eduardo Jordan more than I talk to anybody. Uh, him and Ryan Pruitt in New Orleans and Chris Bianco. Those are the three. Yeah. Right? Because Pruitt's group, you know, the Link group has a very smart way of looking at things. And so I'm always learning something from them. And then with Eduardo and Chris, just like seeing them, watching them on Instagram and seeing their push and their stride to make sure that they're doing what's right for their staff and their family and their cities. We went from the weekly check-in to I talked to Eduardo every other, every couple of days. Like, mm-hmm. what are you doing now? And it's like, I just put pimento cheese in Whole Foods. I was like, fuck yeah, you did. You know, and it's, yeah. like, and it's like, he's like, what are you doing? And it's like, we're doing this. He's like, how do you do the QR codes? I'm like, you do it this way. And so it's like, yeah, sharing the information that we can gain to become better is going to be key. But it's uh, having your friends across the country and having your friends here and like understanding that, like, like I said earlier, like, we all have to do this together. There's no, yeah. there's no you, your way, my way. And it's got to be our way at some point, you know, it's going to be a long term long time coming you know and as long as you can do stupid things that make sense like that's what we had the conversation at the beginning of this with my managers I was like think of the dumbest shit you could possibly think of and then let's talk about it yeah and let's see will it work in a world where I mean margins in restaurants were already fucking tight mm-hmm. you know but at least in Houston there was there was a boom where you could take the risk where someone like you could be like you know what I'm gonna close my super successful fucking restaurant mm-hmm. and I'm gonna open a place that changes concepts every year <laughs> like that's a really fucking risky business endeavor let me take yeah. the thing that's worked really fucking well yeah. all these years and change it for something totally different where we change concepts every year like will the market will there be the infrastructure that allows for chefs to take those creative endeavors I think yes and no. Right. I think that um, in a world of things that are so, it needs to be, I hate to say it like this, clean and cut and narrow and like comforting mm-hmm. at some point, like on Tuesday night, I, I know that I'm, I'm going to get this on Wednesday night. I know I'm going to get this, but on Thursday, I want to fuck it up. Yeah. I want something completely different. Yeah. And so like, how does that work? You know, like I said, we brought back Mediterranean because it was something that we felt comforted about. And we felt like mm-hmm. we loved to do. You know, what does Haymerchant look like? What does Preserve look like when they come back? You know, yeah. how do we change those a little bit without it losing its own voice? I don't know. Like, I'm going to say that real estate is going to be a tricky game to play. Right? That's going to be the trickiest thing in the future. It's because uh, these landlords and people that have bought this property, you know, they owe, they owe money to banks and they've set their things. And, like, what you used to be able to get, like, I already said, like, long before this happened, like, 
you want eighty dollars a square foot, you can pretty much kiss my ass. Like yeah. I'm not even coming in there. Like <laughs> yeah. and now like people did do that, and so that's people ask me all the time like what's the height why is there such a turnover in restaurants before covid and it's like real estate like if you don't get into something that's actually decently priced like you're screwed you know and you're locked into it for a very long time and so like maybe this is the the recheck button to where real estate can possibly drop a little bit and that people can afford to do restaurants again because I don't, I don't know how... Have a more work. collaborative relationship yeah, between tenant be. and landlord. There has to be. Because, like, if you wanted to open something in a Galleria, like... It's not possible. No. You're $80, $90 a square foot, if not more. And, like, who, who, can, de- who can do that? And then you want me to take a 6,000 square foot restaurant? Fuck. Yeah. Like, that thing has to do $8 million a year for the numbers to even work. So, like, how does that, how does that work in this industry anymore? It can't. Hopefully people's landlords will start working with them right now because I think that we're going to get to a point where some really good restaurants are not going to be able to make it because they're not going to be able to suffice a 50% um, cut. Yeah. And especially when you're only getting 40% of that, 50, 50% of that 40%, right? Yeah. Those numbers don't work. Yeah. So it's going to be a long haul. What, what do you want to let people know? People listening, like, if you could let your guests at the restaurant know anything about dining out, what do you want to let people know? I, I, I think, for one, if you're going to dine out, we're taking precautions, right? And don't tell me it's too much. I get your personal point of view, but let us do our job, right? I'm going to heat seal all of our silverware so we don't have to touch it. And yeah, you may have to open a bag and pull your own thing out. Like, deal with that, though, right? We may have hand sanitizer on the table for you. That's yours. Just let us be us. Because at the most part, you're coming out to dine, yes, but we have to maintain our staff safety. What you may see as excessive is because we have to do this over and over again for our staff. Because you're going to leave. We are going to stay there. So, understand that things aren't the way they were. Understand that those menu items may not be there the way they were before. Understand that we have to do things on a different system. And we're all trying to learn it, you know. Don't be like, I want a wine list. Here's your QR code. Use your phone. You've been using your phone for two months. You haven't yeah. gotten off of it. Here's another yeah. chance for you to do that again, right? Until we feel safe and we're back in a place, like, things are going to change. I don't know if I'll ever get rid of the QR codes. So, so walk me through that because I'm not familiar with that. You're, you're doing your wine list through? Menu, beverage list, and wine list. Are on, uh, we have a laminated thing, and it just has three codes on it. And wow. you just put your phone on it and it pops up the menu. That's crazy. It's so smart. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things like I can change the menu without having to reprint. I'll waste all the paper. Do I need to print 100 menus for tonight's service? Like, no. Yeah. I mean, I, man, this would have saved Underbelly a long time ago, right? <laughs> yeah. Save so much time by printing menus. The menu's done yet? You know, let's go over menus. Okay, no. Yeah. Instead, okay, let's talk about food. Everybody pull up your phone. Boom, here it is. You know? Yeah. I spent so many time so much time in my life telling wait staff and cooks to get off their phones. And then now, now in the sudden, past yeah. few years, past month, I've been telling them like, get on your phone. If you don't know it, Google it. It's a smartphone. Get smart. That's right? crazy. So let's just use these things. And like, I understand it's gonna be different, but I understand we're doing it for a reason. 
And that was our conversation. A big thanks to Chris for not only sharing his thoughts, but also sharing his whiskey with me. It's not every day you get to have a foolproof weller before noon. So big thanks to Chris for uh, all of his hospitality. If you want to learn more about what's going on with Southern Smoke and the resources they provide to the restaurant community, you can find that at www.southernsmoke.org. And you can find By the Glass episodes wherever you source your audio content. Thanks for listening to another episode, and we'll see you next week.